Our scripture reading this morning, as you're seated, is from Romans chapter 10. Uh, the Apostle Paul urges Timothy, give attention to the reading. And so we gladly incorporate the reading of the scriptures this morning, focusing more on scriptures behind our meditation. So let's take up the reading here on, uh, from verse 9. Our focus this morning in the message is 14 through 21, but let's get the context. Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth one believes, and with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did not Israel, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, if you've been here before, you know this uh, paler yellow signifies Old Testament passages that stand behind what Paul is saying. So I want us to come to Isaiah 52 as several of these quotes come from this latter section of Isaiah, and I think it's good for us to have this in our minds. I have a sense that the Apostle Paul, when he quotes from the Old Testament, is expecting that you and I will know exactly where it's from and even something of the context of where it is from. So Isaiah 52 and verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. And then just to get a sense of where this is going, 
with these who are preaching the gospel, uh, notice that it is a gospel concerning the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 13, the beginning of that prophecy that runs on into chapter 53. Behold, my servant, that's God's reference to Jesus, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And I highlight the nations here so that we see that when Isaiah is talking about this gospel that's going to be proclaimed, it's not just for the physical Jews. It is for the nations. It is for these other kings that will have dealings with God. Another quote that Paul gives in Romans chapter 10 is from the very next verses, Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And thus this prophecy of the Lord Jesus in his death, his burial, the resurrection continues on through the rest of Isaiah 53. But I want us to come on to Isaiah 65 in verse 20 of Romans 10 is one of these quotes. And in verse uh, 21 of Romans 10 is another quote. So here it is. Prophesying of God's inclusion of the Gentiles. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Don't miss the, the, the graphic picture here. There are people that are not looking for God and God steps into the picture right in front of them and God says, here I am, here I am. I know you're not looking for me, but here I am. And then verse 2 his disposition to the Jews. 
I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, And broth of tainted meat is in their vessels who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Well, with that, let's draw near to our God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God of kindness and grace, that even for these uh, Jews of old who were hard-hearted and obstinate, yet you stand there all day long with your hands stretched out, with your arms open, willing to receive. And what a wonderful picture for us as we come to you and worship We know that we do not merit your favor. We know that we uh, are uh, those who deserve for you to look on us with kindness. But we thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that you have conceived of a plan for us to be saved by sending the Lord Jesus into the world to live a perfect life in our behalf and to die a perfect sacrificial death in our place. Father, we pray that you would speed along this uh, process for uh, Zeta, and we ask our God that you would be pleased uh, to bring her to the States here uh, soon. Uh, We uh, pray for our sister Mary. Uh, We are very sorry that she has had to hear the doctor speak of the reality of her having cancer uh, again. Uh, we pray that you would give skill and wisdom uh, to the doctors, and we pray, our God, that uh, you would guide them uh, with this upcoming surgery. Show your kindness and your mercy. We thank you that Hannah was able to Uh, get the blood transfusions uh, that uh, she needed. Uh, We pray that you'll give skill to those who care for her as an effort was made to go in and uh, cauterize those areas where there was bleeding, but there was no bleeding that was going on at that time. Uh, Father, in this complex situation, we pray that you'll give skill and that you will give uh, help. And then, our Father, we would pray that you'd continue to minister grace uh, to uh, Pete and uh, Karen as they've lost this uh, their 21-year-old son, uh, Pete, Peter. We pray, Lord, that you would show mercy to them and that they would be able to look to you in faith and confidence. And, uh, Father, we would pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts as we worship here together, minister grace uh, to all of us, and we pray, Lord, that you would open the word of God to us, help us 
to appreciate this section in your word of how we as a church are to be involved in evangelism and missions to the ends of the earth. And Father, we thank you that uh, we know a man such as Bala. We thank you for his uh, ongoing labors for the advance of your kingdom there uh, in New Zealand and as well in Sri Lanka and India and Oman and other places as well. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the uh, years of ministry of TNB in the Far East. We thank you for this uh, news coming back from uh, James that one of these young men being interrogated, it seems that the police have accepted his statement that he would be involved in no illegal religious activity. And we pray, Lord, that you would further hide him and the church uh, from the authorities that are making life very difficult for these believers. And our Father, we would pray that uh, you would help us now as we give of our tithes and our offerings. Thank you for our health. Thank you for our jobs that you give to us. And thank you for privilege, the privilege of being involved in advancing your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And then let's sing together. It's from the blue at the end of the pew. If you want it or on the screen, hymn number 379, Send Thou, O Lord. And in the passage before us, uh, in Romans 10, there is this language, and how shall they preach if they are not sent, implying that the church needs to send them. So uh, we'll sing this hymn number 379 in the blue as the men wait on us.
It's our privilege to open the scriptures once again to the book of Romans. We're in that section that deals with the international defense of the gospel. This is why I am laboring, Paul says, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is why I hope that as I come to you that you will send me on the way to Spain. We're in the midst of this section of chapter 10 that focuses on human responsibility. We remind ourselves that Rome was a vast empire. There were a lot of nations that would feed into that capital city of Rome. And I think there's a statement of all roads lead to Rome. And we can see the ease in which Uh, that travel could take place with all of those Roman roads and all of those trade routes on the Mediterranean. As Paul writes to the church at Rome, he recognizes the ethnic mix in that church, and he promotes unity among this ethnic mix of the church. We've seen already something of God's sovereign freedom. That's chapter 9. It underscores the Bible's teaching on election and how God works in human history. But we've seen as well in chapter 10 something of this emphasis on human responsibility or the free offer of the gospel where you as an individual are responsible to believe. You're responsible to believe from your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Even though the philosophers at Athens, as we will see, when they heard of the resurrection, they mocked Paul. But we believe it, and we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. So under this human responsibility, first of all, you need to believe, but secondly, 14 through 21, you need to share the gospel of grace. And as we look at these questions that meet us in verse 14 and 15, notice this progression of thought and notice the repetition of key words, the repetition of key verbs. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, where have we seen the Apostle Paul repeat verbs to underscore a progression of thought? Well, all the way back to chapter 8 and verse 29, whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a huge amount of truth that is revealed in this one uh, section of two uh, sentences in 29 
and 30, it leads us to see that there is a way of thinking of the key blessings of salvation where it starts with God's calling, it ends with us being glorified, arriving at heaven. Well, as we're looking at these words, it underscores for us that when Paul is writing the book of Romans, he is not haphazard in his approach. He is not careless, but there is a method, there is a logic. And so this puts a certain amount of responsibility on us if we're going to understand what he's talking about. We will need to think on how these words hit together, fit together, so may God help us to be anxious to carefully follow the Apostle Paul's thought. Here it is in verse 14 and 15, what is our responsibility in evangelism and missions? Well, what we want is that other individuals will be calling on the name of Jesus, calling on the name of Jesus in worship. And of course, they need to call on him saying, please save me. This calling on Jesus in verse 14 obviously comes back to verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's our responsibility in missions? Well, we know that those who are going to call on Jesus, first of all, have to believe in Jesus. And if you're going to believe in Jesus, then you need to hear about Jesus so you know what you are believing. And if you're going to hear about Jesus, somebody else needs to preach about Jesus. And if someone is going to preach about Jesus, then someone needs to be sending those preachers in the name of Jesus Christ. So there is this progression and development in thought. Let's come to the text itself as we look at our handout sheets, if you care to. Roman number one, four questions. Four questions highlighting our gospel responsibility, verses 14 and 15. First of all, A, how will they worship? How will they worship Jesus Christ without faith? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't call on Jesus if they have not embraced Jesus by faith. Here, even in the beginning of one's personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there is this activity of calling on the name of the Lord. If you called 911 in your emergency, that means that you believe there is someone on the other end of the line who is going to answer the phone and who is going to help you in your emergency. And in order for you to call on Jesus Christ for salvation, you need to have this faith that he is there able and willing to help. Listen to Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Second question, this is now B. How will they believe in Jesus Christ without hearing of him? And the simple statement is true. They cannot believe in him of whom they have not heard. They need to believe in Jesus Christ that he has been raised from the dead. So there's going to need to be a proclamation that says Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect sacrificial death. He was put in the grave and he was raised from the dead. And as we saw last week, Paul doesn't go through all of that. All he says is, if you can believe in the resurrection, if you can believe in the hardest part of the gospel to believe, then you'll embrace all this other. Jesus spoke to the Gadarene demoniac, and he said to him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And this is the point of the latter part here of verse 14. How will they believe on Jesus Christ without hearing of him? We have an individual responsibility to believe in Christ. Once we are believers, we have a responsibility to make sure that others hear of the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, see our third question, still in verse 14. And how will they hear of Jesus Christ without one preaching? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They cannot hear without a preacher. How could they? Someone must tell them the truth. And Paul uses the word here of the kerouks, of the herald, the one who is sent by a king and has got an authoritative proclamation, hey, everybody, listen to this. Our king says, and there's an authority even in the way that it is presented. This is what Peter does at the house of Cornelius. He goes into the history of the Lord Jesus and then to Cornelius, this uh, Gentile interested uh, in the gospel of Jesus. Peter says to him, and God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Preaching. How is someone going to be converted without preaching? It's striking to me that back in the days of Spurgeon in the mid-1800s, 1850 roughly, it was in the newspapers, it was in print, that the day of preaching is over. And as the great men of the earth make their pompous pronouncement, it's about the time that a 19-year-old was coming to London, and in the course of a very short period of time, Charles Spurgeon was preaching to thousands every morning and every evening. 
And there was something of a 30-year evangelistic mission that was carried on. When they built their building, they could seat 5,000. 5,000 in the morning, 5,000 there in the evening. And once a quarter, they would make an announcement, we want all of our members and all of our regular visitors to stay home tonight, go to another place of worship, because we're opening the doors to 5,000 visitors who would rush in and hear the gospel. Well, we live in a day in which preaching is largely despised. But let God take a pinch of omnipotence and sprinkle it over preaching, and we will see afresh the power of the pulpit. Fourthly, D. The fourth question, now verse 15. How will some preach Jesus Christ without being sent? How will they preach without being sent? And Matthew Henry says they cannot preach except they be sent. Except they be both commissioned and in some measure qualified for their preaching work. How shall a man act as an ambassador unless he has both his credentials and his instructions from the prince that sends him? This proves that to the regular ministry, there must be a regular mission and ordination. We as the people of God are responsible to believe as individuals, But then we are responsible as a corporate assembly to make sure that the gospel is taken to our own community and to the ends of the earth. Notice with me, number one, under uh, this fourth question D, the absolute necessity of church-based missions. All believers can share the good news But all believers are not equipped in the same way for this authoritative proclamation of the gospel. There are gift requirements, there are grace requirements, and Paul has spelled those out in Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Why do I talk about the church? Well, this is what Paul has in mind. When he's talking about how are they going to preach unless they are sent, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. We're going to see Paul at the church at Antioch, the big Antioch. There are two Antiochs in the New Testament. In fact, there are two Antiochs in Acts chapter 13. But the first one is the third largest city at that time. Rome's number one, Alexandria's number two, and Antioch that's on that eastern shore uh, in the area of modern-day Syria, though Turkey's kind of taken it over uh, for uh, today. Uh, The church is worshiping and fasting. See it now, Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, this is Paul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. It is the church that is worshiping and fasting. It is the Holy Spirit that identifies Barnabas and Paul and says, commission them. It is the church that fasts and prays and lays hands on these men, commissioning them to their great work. So who sent Paul and Barnabas? Well, God the Spirit did. Yes, but the church at Antioch did. They both did in conjunction. And this is what is in Paul's mind. Then how will they preach unless they are sent, unless they are commissioned? And that the church has a role in this, recognizing of officers. Let me just read from Acts 14 and verse 23. Paul's on one of these missionary journeys, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, but it's literally after the extending of the hand to vote. It's pointing to the fact that the congregation has a part in recognizing leadership and that they are sent out, Acts 14 and verse 27, as they are finished with that missionary journey, they come back to the church that sent them out. You sent us out, you've been praying for us, perhaps you've helped us financially, and now we owe you the responsibility of coming back to you, and what do they do? They arrived and gathered the church together, 1427. They declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. I want you to see the importance of biblical order. Sometimes a church can grasp a fair amount of biblical truth, but it's not enough to simply have this general body of divinity, this information, but it's also important to know, well, how do we go about missions? How do we send someone? Well, the church is involved in this. And it reminds me of those that have gone out from our assembly and they're in another assembly and they are confronted with, the there's this body of truth, but then when it comes to how they do church, there are some things that are significantly lacking. King Jesus has a reason why he does what he does. And we want to discern these things. But notice here that Paul is very plain in his mind. We want them to believe. We want them to call on the name of the Lord. We know they have to believe. We know they need to hear. If they're going to hear, somebody's got to preach. And if they're going to preach, somebody has got to be sent and sent by a local church. Please, See the importance of biblical principles all the way across the spectrum of our lives. 
But when we think of how Paul's life was bound up with the church, when he thinks of evangelism, when he thinks of missions, he traces it back to those who are sending, those of the church. If you're a believer, then a biblically ordered church ought to be a key part of your life. And there's a benefit to you and me as individuals. It's in the context of the church that we have the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. These various means of grace that are going to help us get to the end. But you also are a benefit to the church having a part in the sending of preachers in that official capacity, helping to fund it, helping to pray for them on a regular basis, the absolute necessity of church-based missions. But verse 15 doesn't stop there, does it? It gives us a glimpse. It gives us a picture of the missionary. gives us a picture of of the minister of the gospel that has traveled somewhere, overcome difficulties to share the truth. What's the picture? We'll see it in the latter part of verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And I can imagine in the church at Rome that there's some Gentile that's newly converted, not real familiar with the Old Testament, and he comes to his Jewish brother and friend and he says, what, what is Paul talking about? That the feet of those who carry the gospel, those feet are beautiful. Well, let me illustrate. Perhaps you've heard of the horrible conditions of Japanese-run POW camps throughout the Pacific in World War II. Perhaps you've heard of that prison camp that was on the island of Luzon, uh, same island as Manila is on. And there was horrible treatment. And there's a day in which the Americans come and they free this place. The Japanese guards all run away, but those emaciated U.S. soldiers, POWs, they don't know what is going on. In the midst of the commotion, one of our POWs crawls underneath his bed and he is hiding in fear of whatever has happened and we don't fault him because of all of the horrible trauma that he's undergone there. But the story unfolds while he is under the bed. The first thing that he sees are the worn boots of a U.S. soldier. And those boots were beautiful. Those boots that had traveled through the Pacific Islands to finally get there and liberate them. Well, this is the sense of Isaiah's picture, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. The feet are beautiful. You know, I don't care anything else what he looks like, but those feet have carried him over the mountains to bring us this 
good news of the gospel. And how do I know that this is the good news of the gospel? Well, as we saw in our scripture reading, Isaiah 52, 7 is leading directly into that probably most explicit gospel passage of Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. And that's the message that these feet are carrying. Do you wonder why men there in India and men there in Oman and churches so highly value Pastor Bala? It's because he's been willing to come over the mountains, so to speak, to be there, to be there over the course of 25, 30 years to invest in them in bringing the truth to them and they appreciate it and his feet are beautiful. Roman number two. Six observations. If there are these questions that highlight what our evangelism and missions is to look like, now we come to six observations on what that gospel responsibility, uh, looking at that gospel responsibility. Let me jump in. First of all, A, there is no automatic success from gospel preaching. You're going to be involved in evangelism, going to be involved in missions, Well, one of the first observations is, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Don't think that because the feet are beautiful to some that the message is going to be accepted by all. No, not at all. He goes on, Paul does, to quote from Isaiah 53.1, who has believed what he has heard from us. So just because they hear doesn't mean that they're going to believe. And this is his first observation. Even though Isaiah is talking about a message like this, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitutionary atonement through and through. Or Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. You know what happens to a guilt offering? Their neck gets slit. The blood comes out and they die. Every single guilt offering dies. And so with Jesus. But yet, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So here is this rich prophetic truth concerning Jesus. And Isaiah's complaint is, who has believed what he has heard from us? And notice Paul's experience. And I invite you to turn with me to Acts 28. He's in prison at Rome. And in Acts 28, he summarizes his experience there with the Jews. And when they had appointed a day for him, Acts 28 and verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, 
From morning till evening, he expounded, this are the Jews there, expounded the truth to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes, uh, uh, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And there's a principle for you and me. If we will live for the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to know that it's not going to be automatic success. What did Jesus teach us? Matthew 10, verse 34. You need not turn there. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. My hearer, if every individual in your family is a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to know how exceptional your case is. Well, why didn't God save all of my siblings? Well, why didn't God save my wife? Why didn't God save my husband? Sure be a lot easier Part of God's purpose is whether or not you as an individual will stand for Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. Secondly, B. Second observation. There is no salvation success without gospel preaching. So faith comes, verse 17, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. This is what James is talking about, that he brought us forth by the word. Somehow God takes this word. It's not going to automatically bring success, but it is going to bring about conversions where God is truly working. Peter says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word. Paul is preaching on Mars Hill there in Athens. 
where he shares with his philosopher, philosopher hearers. Wow, I'm not sure why that was so hard. Philosopher hearers that God commands all men everywhere to repent and they listen along and listen along until now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Even at Athens, the city of philosophers, there were some that were brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word. Third observation, this is C. There is a universal lesser knowledge of God as creator. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And this is a little harder for me to understand, but it's a reference to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 that celebrates how God speaks to us in creation and then moves to how God speaks to us in his word. And there Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. What I believe Paul is saying here is that Know that as you're involved in evangelism, they already have a lesser knowledge of the truth. They have a first grader's knowledge of the truth of God. Romans 1, they suppress this truth. Romans 1, they know that there is a God. They know of his divine power. And so Paul is telling us as we're involved in missions and in evangelism, that we can have the confidence that as we deal with the most immoral of the most immoral, that we have an ally somewhere deep in that individual's psyche. He knows that he is made by God. If I am dealing with the most sophisticated atheist, I know that I still have an ally somewhere in there. There is this truth of general revelation, and now we're coming with this truth of special revelation revealed by God concerning Jesus, and we're to have the confidence that it fits together perfectly. They should be seeking God but they are not. Fourth observation, this is D. Moses prophesied of Israel's, Moses prophesied of Israel's jealousy and anger over gospel preaching. This comes from Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, we're almost at the end of Deuteronomy, 34 chapters, I think. In chapter 31, he says, I'm finished with all my revelation. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, I'm going to teach you a song. 
And the song is 43 verses long. And in the midst of this song is what Paul quotes from. And Moses says, the reason why I'm giving you this song is that I know that you're hard-hearted against God. And I know that after I die, it's going to get worse. So I'm going to teach you to sing this song so that God hopefully can use it at a later time. And here is his song that he gives, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 21. God says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people, and I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And I'm going to suggest to you that Paul, as he gives us the last half of this verse, that they're going to be made jealous, they're going to be provoked to anger, Paul assumes that we know the first part of the verse where God is complaining. They went and got themselves another God. They wouldn't listen to me. And that bothers me, God says. So I'm going to turn it around on them in judgment. Now turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. We're going to look very quickly at three or four passages here of Paul's experience. But Paul is preaching, here it is at Pisidian Antioch, the smaller Antioch, not where he was sent from, and he preaches about Jesus, and there was gospel success, and the people begged that more could be told them the next Sabbath. Acts 13, verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul, was spoke, what Paul spoke, reviling him. And then he speaks to them and says, I have to preach to you first, but in your hard-hearted condition, I'm turning away from you and I'm going to the Gentiles. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. It all starts in the Old Testament where God says, I'm jealous because you're hanging out with another God. And these Jews see a bunch of people, a crowd that is going to worship their God and they get bothered by it. They get jealous. They get angry. Acts 17 and verse 10, same thing happens at Berea. I think the first there was there in Antioch, Berea, is after Thessalonica. And the hearer's response, 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now verse 12, many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Verse 13, what's the response of the Jews? But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, and agitating and stirring up the crowd. And then we'll jump ahead to Acts 22. This is Paul in Jerusalem. And he calms them by talking in the Hebrew tongue. Acts 22, verse 1 and 3. But then verse 20 he goes on, he's telling the story of Israel's history. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, God said to me, Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this point, they, the Jews, listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, give me a stone. The tribune has to step in. And then finally, E. The observation from Isaiah, he prophesied of a Gentile inclusion by divine intervention, verse 20, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. They are not seeking about seeking God of the Bible. They're not asking about him. But God steps in in front of them and says, here I am, here I am. And the question ought to rise, how are individuals who are not looking for God, how are they going to find him? E.J. Young writes, those who had not sought after him found him nonetheless. In other words, God's free grace reached those who did not know him and who made no effort to find him. They, in fact, were found by him. Isaiah's forceful, forceful language simply asserts the reality of the sovereign and free grace given to sinners. Paul can say, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not God. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, Yes, it is true that you and I must know God. But if we come to know God, then we need to know that behind that, God knew us first. F. Isaiah portrays God as a willing evangelist and Savior. Verse 21. All day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What kind of people was God dealing with? Disobedient and contrary. Isaiah tells us they're in open defiance. They're involved in idolatrous worship. Not very good for a Jew. They are in consultation with the dead. They're in the tombs, in the secret place all night. 
and in defiance of the ritual impurity of the pigs. They're eating pigs. They're not very good Jews. And yet how does God respond to them? How does he engage with them? He is standing there with his arms open, with his hands stretched out as a symbol on the part of God of his willingness to receive them. His posture is, I'm taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn, turn, why will you die? And what I want you to see is that Paul is quoting from Isaiah 52 about those who are going to take the message over the mountains, how their feet are beautiful, what that message is. Even though who's going to listen to our report is what Isaiah says. You come to Isaiah 55 and we have Jehovah the evangelist entreating And then we come to Isaiah 65, and there's God standing with his hands and with his arms wide open. And how long does God entreat them? All day long. Not only that day, not only that year, not only that century, but down through the ages of the Old Testament, God is willing to receive his people back. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. Romans 9. Yes, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Yes, God must work. God must call and regenerate and bring about spiritual resurrection. But I want you to see that as he closes this section, those open hands, these spread arms, are an indication that our God is a good God. And if you refuse him, you're refusing the God who is willing to receive you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at those open arms, those extended hands, and know that Jesus Christ is yours if you will have him. But you have to have him. You have to believe in him yourself. Well, may God write this on our hearts as believers. What's our job in evangelism and missions? Well, we want people to be calling on the name of Jesus in worship. And we know that if they're going to call, they have to believe. And if they're going to believe, they have to hear. And if they're going to hear, then someone's got to preach. And if someone is going to preach, someone has got to send them, has got to apostello, send them with a commission for them to be involved in this great
Ours is the privilege. Ours is the privilege to be involved in evangelism. And ours is is the privilege of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, please take your word and own it. Help us to see things here in Romans 10 that perhaps we have never seen before. And having seen them, help them not to drop out of our thinking. Grant our God that in your kindness, those who are not yet believers would see the open arms and come to you in faith. And we pray that for those of us who are believers, that we will value the place of the church and we'll be gladly involved in our mission as a church to evangelize here and to the ends of the world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.